So again, the Old Testament reading is Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. And then we'll turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 28, verse 17. Let's hear the word of the Lord. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Here ends the reading of God's word from Isaiah. Turn to Acts of the Apostles, chapter 28, verse 17. hear the word of God. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, They wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening... He expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. 
And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Here ends the reading of God's word from the Acts of the Apostles. going to introduce what may seem to be a strange introduction, but let me ask you, parents, you love your children, but how many times do you correct your child for doing something that's truly dangerous? Once, twice, three times. What if the child did it deliberately? It was no accident. They didn't just sort of weren't just playing with something. They actually deliberately wanted to do something to harm someone else. Would you permit it once? Would you punish them a second time? Warn them a second time? Three times? How many times? Would you rebuke a child? And the second kind of question is, how dangerous does their behavior have to be before you decide, I'm going to put a definite stop to it, just end it. Would it be the sin of lying? Stealing? What if they stole your car? What if they stole all the money out of your bank account? You had an older son or daughter who knew how to get access to your funds and just emptied your bank account and spent it, let's say, on drugs or wild living. Would you warn them once, twice, three times? I've known acquaintances who've told me that they've had a friend of theirs who had a daughter who was an alcoholic and they had to eventually, the parents had to eventually disinherit the daughter, just totally cut her off from them. What would cause you to do something like that if it was your own child? What would cause you to have a court order barring your own child from coming within, say, 100 feet of your, your, your person or coming into your property? What if your child murdered someone in your family? The reason I bring that up is to understand what's going on in Acts 28. We have to understand the history of God's children, the Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews. 
In Moses' day, during the life of Moses, God's people in the Old Testament despised God and did not believe in God. This is after God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. Numbers chapter 14, here's what the Lord said to Moses. Here's what the Lord said to Moses. How long will this people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? This is during the lifetime of Moses. In 2 Kings, you have this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah. This is long after Moses is gone. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer saying, quote, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Those are just a couple of passages from the Old Testament. You could go to Moore, you could go to Isaiah, you could go to Jeremiah, you could go to Hosea, you could go to a lot of different prophets. Stephen, the first martyr after Jesus was martyred, in Acts chapter 7, summarizes the history of God's children, God's chosen people, with these words. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, what Stephen is referring to is the history of the Old Testament it is one of rebellion against God, God rescuing them, sending messenger after messenger in a way you could say he's sending lawsuit after lawsuit. They've broken the covenant, re covenant, repent or perish, repent or perish. He sends prophet, 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 and they reject the prophet, prophet, prophet. And then they murdered the righteous one, Jesus Christ. Now, it was the Romans who actually did it, but the Jews were saying, crucify him. The ruling elite in the council in Jerusalem condemned him to death. Jesus tells an interesting parable that Luke records. Remember, Luke wrote Acts, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, so it's two volumes. And in chapter 20 of Luke, Jesus is telling this parable. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one also. They wounded and cast out. 
Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, that's they, the people he's speaking to, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. What Jesus is saying there, it's not about a vineyard, it's about the kingdom of God. The vineyard is a poetic way of describing God's people as a vineyard that he was protecting and nourishing and taking care of. The vineyard is the kingdom of God on earth. God had chosen Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. God had nurtured them. They had rebelled over and over and over and over again. And here's Jesus, the Son of God, coming to the Jews first. And he tells this parable to them, which Luke records in Luke 20. And they murdered him. You might think the grace and mercy of God was over at that point, but it wasn't. Not yet for that nation. In the beginning of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke records the beginning of the Holy Spirit being poured out and saying to the Apostles, to wait for that Holy Spirit to be poured out with these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They killed Jesus. Crucify him, they cried. The Romans did it on the cross. They mocked him. The Jews, the Jewish leaders mocked him. And the resurrected, ascended Jesus Christ tells the apostles, go to Jerusalem and be eyewitnesses about my resurrection. And Peter goes and preaches and they repent. Thousands of Jews repented at Pentecost. And then the gospel goes to Judea and to Samaria. And now what you need to understand is as we come to Acts 28, this is the last time the apostles, specifically the apostle Paul, doing what Jesus commanded him to do, will address the gospel to the Jews as God's kingdom. Paul can't go to the Jews in Rome. He's in Rome. He's in chains. He's under house arrest. He can't leave. He's under guard. 
So he summons the leaders of the Jews in Rome. Now let's also give this some context for the Apostle Paul. In Acts, we have at least four times where Paul explains and defends his apostleship to the Jews, specifically to the Jews. First time in Acts chapter 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. And when he's speaking, he's in Jerusalem. So he's brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. So that was his first introduction to defending the gospel and his apostleship. I'm a Jew. Acts chapter 22. Acts chapter 23. This is, this is Paul before the rulers judging him at the council in Jerusalem. So this is in Jerusalem still. Acts 23. Paul cried out in the council in Jerusalem, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. Okay, that's the second time. Third time. This time he's in Caesarea with the Jews of Caesarea. Acts 24, verse 14. But this I confess to you, the Jews in Caesarea, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. That's the third time he defends himself to Jews, this time in Caesarea. In Acts 26, he's before the Jewish king, King Agrippa. And here's what he says to him, and there are probably Jews listening to this as well. But, my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So he's done this four times among the Jews. Defended himself. Paul saying basically, I'm a good Jew. I'm not guilty of anything. I believe in the law of Moses. I believe in the, the prophets. I believe all the writings. And here's what he says, in paraphrasing in Acts 28. He says to the Jews, Brothers, without having done anything against God's people or our customs, I was arrested and they found no reason to kill me. And he, says, he goes on to say, The Jewish leaders opposed freeing me, so I appealed to Caesar, and then he says this, but I don't have anything against this, the nation. I don't have anything against my nation. In other words, he's not appealing to Caesar about some crime committed by the Jews in Jerusalem. He's saying, I'm not doing that. I'm only here in Rome in change because the Jews in Jerusalem and others have insisted on pursuing me. And so I had to appeal to Caesar. So the Jewish leaders in Rome agree to hear Paul. In other words, he, he gathers the leaders together and he says, I want to tell you basically 
And so they go back out, and there's a, there's a specific day that they set when they're going to come back to Paul, who's in chains, under house arrest, living in Rome. They're going to come back, and it doesn't name numbers, but it says, many came. Many came to meet with Paul. So the Jewish leaders, any other Jews who wanted to come, many came. And mark this. Paul spoke to them from morning till evening. How would you like an eight-hour sermon or an eight-hour teaching from the Apostle Paul? who was supernaturally called by Jesus Christ and filled with the Holy Spirit. He is explaining. So what the text says is, and this is a quote, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Again, preaching Christ from the Old Testament. That's what Paul was doing. He's not inventing it, but he's saying, I'm an eyewitness to this resurrection. And this is exactly what Paul has done over and over and over again. It's recorded in Acts. It's the same message over and over again. For example, Acts 17. He's in Thessalonica where there was a synagogue. And Paul went in, as was his custom, goes into the synagogue. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the King of Kings. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David, the descendant of David. He does that to the Jews in Thessalonica in chapter 17 of Acts. 18, chapter 18 of Acts. He's in Corinth. And it simply says he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Greeks and Jews. Acts 18, a little farther down. Another man, Apollos, who gets informed about some pieces missing in his theology. And so what does he do, this Apollos, who's apparently a good, a good orator? He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The Christ was Jesus. That's what Apollos does. And then one more for, for Paul. In Acts 19... Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is what Paul did. This is what the apostles did. Jesus called them. Jesus equipped them. Jesus said, you will be my eyewitnesses. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And this is the last time they're going to get the message. The Jews as Jews, as a nation. The response of the Jewish leaders in Rome is mixed. They, have, they leave disagreeing among themselves. Well, what do you think? Oh, I don't know. They're, they're not united. Nobody gets baptized. That's one of the signs that Paul really had a convert. They were baptized and they joined the church, the sect, the way, various terms for it in the, in the Acts of the Apostles. And almost as they're leaving, it's almost like, okay, Paul has, has argued from morning to evening, reasoning from the law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, from the prophets. He's done eight hours of teaching and preaching to them. 
And he's reached a point where they're not really going to believe. And he realizes it. So it's almost as they're leaving, not sure, what do you think? He says this. The Holy Spirit said this about you. Through Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Imagine Paul saying that out loud to this group of God's people. In other words, Paul is basically saying, you'll never be convinced by anything you hear or anything you see because your hearts are dull, hardened. In other words, Paul is saying that he and God are finished dealing with the Jews as a nation, as a separate nation. No more kingdom of God for the Jews in Jerusalem. It's done. So he then says, let it be known to you, to the Jewish leaders from Rome, that this salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. We can't stop there because the text goes on in a few verses. And keep in mind, Luke has been building up to these verses for many chapters. From chapter 1 of Luke, he's been building up to this verse or two at the end of this book. For two years, people were free to meet with Paul. Paul welcomed anyone who came and preached about the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ without fear and without any encumbrance, with complete freedom to preach and teach. What's the conclusion from this part of Acts of the Apostles? Well, first of all, it's not about Paul or his destiny. It's likely that he saw the Emperor Nero and was beheaded. We don't have that in Scripture. There's mixed evidence on that, but I think that's the most likely thing. Because he was told he would stand before Caesar. And Caesar at that time was Nero. The conclusion from Luke, beginning with the Gospel and going all the way through Acts, is this is about Jesus Christ. And Acts of the Apostles is just that, what Jesus Christ did by sending his apostles with the word of God to be his authoritative spokesman about the good news, the gospel, about the kingdom of God on earth, and about the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And it is also about the rejection by many in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts of the Apostles. 
And Luke, therefore, records with this absolutely stunning statement, much like what Paul could say in 2 Timothy. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy, verses 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. For two years, in the center of the ancient Roman Empire, He was free to preach and teach Christ and the kingdom of God on earth. He was in chains, but the word of God went forth freely in that ancient city of Rome, the center of the known world at that time. The gospel went forth through Paul and the other apostles just as Jesus wanted. It's a success story. Now, what's the application for us from this? I'm not the Apostle Paul. And the message of the gospel, which is about faith and repentance, should not be changed. Paul reasoned from the Old Testament. Peter reasoned from the Old Testament. And their reasoning from the Old Testament is what we have recorded in the New Testament. So we can reason more easily from the New Testament because they connect the dots from Moses and Isaiah and whatever, Jeremiah on in the Psalms. So in our day, if people reject the clear, simple, competent preaching and teaching of the good news, it is not caused to change the message. But to admit that the listener's heart is dull. The listener's heart is not right with God. Finding a different messenger or pretending a better message would work is not the solution. It will not cause someone to believe in the true and living God because his messengers are restricted to the written word of God. It's a simple truth, but it's so profound. There's nothing wrong with preaching Christ from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and having people walk out saying, I don't believe that. Your children, your unbelieving family members, your friends do not need a better preacher or a better gospel if they have a competent preacher, competent teacher of the gospel, they don't need a better one or a different one. They need a change of heart. A soft heart to replace a dead, stony heart in rebellion against God. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. So this church, all of us here, should understand the implications of that. We pray for competent preaching and teaching from the Word of God, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to touch the very nature that rebels against God in anyone in this room or in our connections, family, and whatever. God 
has got to change the heart. We should never change the message. So we should all pray regularly, earnestly, for the competent preaching from the preacher, for the competent teaching from the scriptures, always from the scriptures, always from the scriptures, not cute stories about this pastor's life or some other person's life, but stories that are history from the scripture. That's the message. It's always about Christ, always about faith, always about repentance, turning away from the deadness of the life you had to the living word of God in Jesus Christ. Another application, this church and any true church should be a church for all peoples. Any nation, any language, any background. This is not an American church. This is not a New England church, but a church for all peoples from all backgrounds because the gospel is for all peoples from all nations, all languages, all tribes, etc. We don't specialize in New Englanders. We don't specialize in families with young children. We don't specialize with senior citizens. We specialize in sinners who need to hear about Christ. and who need to hear about it weekly at least. So we are an international church. We don't belong to the United States of America. We don't belong to Canada. We don't belong to Great Britain or any other nation. We are the kingdom of God on earth. We are the chosen people. Now a, a sub-point that God makes through Paul and others, is that God has been faithful to all his promises in the Old Testament. Properly understood, all those promises in the Old Testament were to be fulfilled through one person, one person, Jesus Christ, the son of David, a priest of the order of Melchizedek, not like the Levites, of the Virgin Mary, Emmanuel, God with us. This person is the person that people come to. And all the promises are yes and amen in him. There are no promises anywhere in Holy Scripture, from Genesis all the way through the Revelation, that do not come to any people group except through Jesus, the Son of God. And there's a whole lot of misunderstanding about that in some places in this world. But understand something else that's true in this passage. When Paul quotes Isaiah, Paul knows exactly what he's saying. And that's that God is not of infinite patience with people. There comes a day and a time when the hardness of a people's heart or an individual's heart is so strong that God says, I'm done with him or her. Or I'm done with this people. We don't know exactly when that happens, but apparently Paul said, you Jews in Rome and you Jews back in Jerusalem are so hardened. You've had plenty of opportunity to hear the gospel from the apostles, Peter, Paul, 
Stephen, others that were gifted to preach Christ to God's chosen people, the Jews. Here's the last and perhaps the best application. The word of God is not chained. Though, though the emperor Nero decide to persecute Christians, which he probably did, blame them for the burning of Rome, there's some evidence that he had Christians crucified and burned alive in his garden in Rome. It's not in Holy Scripture. That's a pretty good start to a persecution. Christians were quite literally persecuted to the point of death in some provinces with some zeal by other emperors. But the word of God went forward in ancient Rome. It went underground, came out from worshiping. Can you imagine living in Rome and the place where you had to go to worship was in the underground graveyard, the catacombs were where dead people were buried? And that's where you would meet for the Lord's Supper? And that's where you would hear the word of God expounded? And if you were a slave, you would get there super early to be out of the master's household in Rome so you could go sneak down into the catacombs because you were a slave, you weren't free, but you wanted to hear about Jesus. And some slaves became elders in the church. And the Romans, the Roman elite, heard about this, they went, that's an insane sort of thing, making a slave, somebody who has authority over a noble Roman citizen. Well, the world was turned upside down by the word of God unchained, unbound. The word of God is not hidden now. It's available to many people in many places, this place being one of them. It's going out from here to the world, and you are part of that with your prayers, with your finances, sometimes with your own children, you go and you help. Some of you remember Ann Holbrook going to work with Sam Fulton in China. Some of you know of other people who've gone. Emily Kilmer's in Puerto Rico, maybe back from Puerto Rico soon, helping to reach the Puerto Rican people in the Spanish language, which she's pretty good at. You are part of God's people. You are part of the kingdom of God on earth now. Now. This is where the spiritual action is. From here to eternity, the kingdom of God will prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail against this church of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are or should be excited that even though Paul was in chains, he had the freedom to preach and teach Christ openly in that center of the ancient world, the Roman city. And we pray, Father, for you to raise up more preachers and teachers, missionaries, to go forth to start churches where there are none, where men, women, and children would hear from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from Moses, from the prophets, from the Psalms, from the letters of Paul, from the letters of others in the New Testament. Oh, Father, may you use your written word to wake up a dead and dying world 
with your spirit accompanying the preaching of your word. Oh, Father, this is the glory of your kingdom in, in its coming to this planet. We pray for its success, for we know there is a day appointed where it will stop and the end will come and there will be a judgment and a resurrection for all. May we understand our part in that effort of making the gospel known. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>